G'day and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr Todd Fraser. The duration of antibiotic therapy represents an interesting conundrum for many of us in clinical practice, balancing the risks of incomplete treatment and relapse if the duration is too brief, and unnecessary exposure to the drug and its attendant consequences if given for too long. Joining me today to explore this important issue is Dr Nick Bannerman from the Division of Infectious Diseases at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto, Canada. Nick is the lead author of the soon-to-be-released paper by the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group entitled Duration of Antimicrobial Treatment for Bacteremia in Canadian Critically Ill Patients. Nick, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So, Nick, tell me about the background to this study. Why is it important to be researching this area? Well, you know, one of my mentors once said to me when I was an infectious disease resident, Nick, there's only two things we don't know in infectious disease, what antibiotic to use and how long to use it for. And uh, I thought that was pretty funny at the time. But as a practicing infectious disease specialist, it gets more and more frustrating that a lot of what we do is art and not science-based, and particularly around that second point around treatment duration. We're commonly asked at the time of consultation, how long should this patient be treated with antibiotics? And it seems like it should be an easy answer, but often we have no answer. So uh, the idea here was to try to bring some science to that, and particularly for our most vulnerable patients, critically ill patients with uh, bacteremia and bloodstream infection, where this is particularly understudied. What do we know about bacteremia in ICU patients at this point in time? There's been no randomized control trials in adults. There's one uh, very small trial, 60 patients, also very small patients. They were neonates, published a number of years ago looking at seven versus 14 days of treatment for them, and they found equal clinical failure and relapse rates in those treated with seven and 14 days. Very, very small study and nothing in the adult literature. We systematically reviewed literature looking for studies. We didn't find any particularly directed at bacteremia in adults, but we did find 24 studies comparing short versus longer treatment duration in the most common infections complicated by bacteremia, like pneumonia, palonephritis, line infection, skin and soft tissue infection, and intra-abdominal infection. And those were numerous trials, and there were something like 7,700 patients across those trials. But only a few of the trials reported on the subgroup with bacteremia, and so there was only data for less than 200 patients in those subgroups across those trials. But in those small pooled subgroups, we saw equal clinical cure rates and equal survival rates um, in patients receiving shorter and longer treatment duration. So not much data out there, but the small amount that there is seems to suggest that it might be safe to treat for shorter durations. And I think in your paper you quoted up to 15% of ICU patients develop a bacteremia during their stay or at the start of their stay. Do we know anything about their outcomes? Yeah, so it is the second most common probably uh, infection in ICU. If you can call it infection, some people might argue that it's not really a site of infection. It's more you know, spillover into the bloodstream from other sources. But that's one in every six or so patients in ICU that have a bloodstream infection, so it's very high. And it's hard to know how much it contributes to mortality, but there are some higher-end estimates that mortality might be as high as double or triple in those with bloodstream infection compared to those without does the presence of a bacteremia itself have its own consequences, as it were, or is it simply a marker of the severity of the, the illness itself? I think for most situations, it's probably just a marker of the severity of the infection 
and the susceptibility of that patient to severe infection. Probably one exception uh, might be Staph aureus bacteremia, um, which is one that I can mention later we'll be excluding from our uh, upcoming trial of short versus longer treatment duration. You know, nobody's ever done a proper randomized controlled trial for Staph aureus bacteremia, but there is quite a lot of observational data out there to suggest that shorter durations are associated with higher rates of complications. I think Staph aureus is a special bacteria because it's so sticky. It has so many surface molecules that can adhere to so many different host tissues and so notoriously causes heart valve infection, endocarditis, or bone and joint infection in patients treated for insufficient periods of time. Nick, so it seems that uh, this study, the the intention of your study was to find out what's actually happening in practice after a survey of what people were self-reporting their practice to be was. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, we had started with a systematic view, saw no evidence out there to guide treatment, followed that with a national practice survey across Canada, infectious disease and ICU specialists, to see what people were doing in the absence of evidence and saw that the most common recommendation uh, was 14 days of treatment across all the different types of bloodstream infection, bacteremic pneumonia, bacteremic line infection, urine infection, skin and soft tissue and intra-abdominal infection. So the survey suggests that people tend to treat for long, but even though the most common recommendation was 14 days, there were still lots of people recommending 10 days and 7 days, and so there did seem to be a, kind of a collective equipoise for a, a trial of shorter treatment duration. But that's just self-report, and uh, we don't always do what we say we do clinically, so we wanted to follow that up with this observational study. So uh, we enrolled patients across 14 ICUs across Canada to measure actual treatment durations they were receiving. So tell us about the study itself. How did you go about it? So the initial uh, two studies were just done uh, by myself uh, and my co-PI, uh, Rob Fowler, an intensive care specialist here at Sunnybrook. And after those initial groundwork studies, we engaged the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group and then people were really interested across the group, and we enlisted about 13 co-investigators at other sites across Canada. And so across their 13 ICUs and our ICU at Sunnybrook in Toronto, we looked for the 100 most recent patients with a positive blood culture that became positive after they were admitted to a critical care unit. And we didn't actually get 100 in every one of those units, but in most we got 100, so we ended up with just over 1,200 patients with Bactremia. Even though we required the culture to become positive while they're in ICU, it could have been collected before they were in ICU. So about half of them are community-acquired bloodstream infections, and then the other half are a mix of ICU-acquired and hospital-acquired bacteremia. But the study excluded certain groups of patients, didn't it? The patients who were most likely to need uh, longer-term therapy, is that right? You're right. And I did mention earlier that we're excluding Staphylococcus aureus. That's only going to be in our prospective trial. We didn't exclude them from this study. In this, we didn't exclude any organisms, so any bacteria, and also actually Canada as a fungal species would have been included. So in fact, there were 100 different bacterial species isolated from the blood cultures of these patients. What we did exclude were uh, sources of infection that are well-documented to need more prolonged treatment. So infective endocarditis, osteomyelitis, an undrained abscess, or an unremoved prosthetic infection. So actually not that many infections out there for which we know we need more prolonged treatment. I should mention, sorry, the one group of pathogens we did exclude were any potential contaminants in a single positive blood culture. So we, we allowed coagulase-negative staphylococcus, for example, 
but not if it was only in one blood culture. So it seems that the, the primary endpoint was to define what the duration of therapy for most of these patients are. What were the findings that you had from the paper? Yeah, that was definitely our most uh, important primary outcome. We wanted to know how long people were being treated. We found that actual practice really did quite closely mirror the results of our survey. 14 days was the median treatment duration for all comers in the study. Also, if we broke things down by the source of bacteremia, the median was anywhere 13, 14, or 15 days, so very similar, irrespective of what the suspected source of bacteremia was. So it seems like in Canada, at least, people are tending to treat for an average of two weeks for patients with bloodstream infection. And so if a trial could show that seven days was non-inferior to 14 days, we'd have an opportunity to shift a paradigm and potentially lead to massive reductions in days of antibiotic treatment in ICU and beyond. Nick, one of the problems with duration of therapy studies is accounting for people who die in the anal- uh, during the study. How did you account for this in the analysis? That's impossible to fully account for in an observational study. One thing we tried to do was we propensity-matched patients receiving shorter versus longer duration treatment. And then, well, even actually before that, we excluded any patients that died while still receiving antibiotic treatment in the first 10 days. So we didn't want to count anybody whose duration of treatment could have been determined by death rather than by the decision of their clinical team. So that did rule out almost a quarter of our study population. We were still able to uh, fancy match quite a number of other uh, patients with longer versus shorter duration treatment. The second part of the uh, analysis seems to focus on uh, what the determinants of duration of therapy might be. What were the factors that you found that influenced clinicians' prescribing behaviour? Yeah, it's interesting that we didn't find very much among the many patient characteristics and pathogen characteristics that we looked at. Uh, we didn't find very much that was associated with receiving longer, greater than 10, or shorter, less than or equal to 10 days of treatment. Patient characteristics, you know, a patchy score was not predictive, age was not predictive, most comorbidities were not predictive. There was one comorbidity which came out as statistically significant, which was COPD, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, more commonly associated with shorter duration treatment. I'm not sure if that was just an artifact of the fact that we looked at so many predictor variables or whether it is a, a true finding. In terms of pathogens, we didn't find any other than coagulase negative staphylococcus to be associated with shorter duration treatment. So coagulated staph was the only one, and it was about a fourfold increased likelihood of getting shorter treatment, which uh, I think makes sense. We didn't find any pathogens associated with longer treatment. Would have expected staph aureus maybe to be associated with longer treatment, but since everybody's getting two weeks on average, staph aureus didn't come out as longer than that. And then in terms of sources of infection, a urinary tract source was associated with longer treatment on average than the other sources, and an unknown source of infection was associated with shorter treatment on average. But in general, there weren't very many predictors, uh, and that kind of strengthened our resolve that it would be okay to study bacteremia as a, a study focus as opposed to only concentrating on a specific pathogen or a specific source of infection in a study. Nick, the results suggest that there's almost a blanket approach to this where regardless of the factors that might be involved, the therapy is given in the same way. Did these results surprise you? I would have expected that there might have been a bit more art and tailoring of therapy to the specific needs of the patients and what seems to be represented in your findings. I think there's definitely 
art and tailoring going on out there. But it's amazing because we've presented these findings in a lot of different venues and forums, and there's always people in the crowd that will put their hands up and say, well, I would always treat pyelonephritis longer. But then someone else in another room will put their hand up and say, this surprised me because I, was, I would always treat pyelonephritis shorter. Or some people will say, well, I would never treat pseudomonas for shorter, and then other people aren't worried about the non-fermenters, and they're more worried, let's say, uh, about polymicrobial infections. So I think on an individual level, people may have developed an art and a defined approach, which they've tailored by organism uh, or patient characteristics or source of infection. But I think collectively, it looks like we treat these patients quite similarly. Is there any evidence of, uh, or any, any studies in other regions of the world that mirror these results? Or is this, are these results unique to Canada, do you think? I definitely don't think they're unique to Canada. So we have a little bit of data I could share with you because we're excited uh, in this BALANCE research program, which is our acronym for uh, the trial and the preparatory work that we've been doing. We've engaged collaborators in United Kingdom, Switzerland, Saudi Arabia, and uh, Australia and New Zealand. So actually we presented this in Noosa just last March with a lot of interest and engagement across critical care uh, researchers in Australia and New Zealand. They didn't uh, apply, we were thinking about having them apply our electronic case report form to abstract data from ICUs in Australia and New Zealand. They haven't done that, but did look retrospectively in some databases from some previous trials on unrelated topics, but in which antibiotic treatments have been captured. And it looks like the treatments of treatment durations in Australia and New Zealand are very similar to what we see in Canada. In Switzerland, some collaborators there took our electronic case report form and collected data from a couple of ICs there, a total of about 100 patients, and found almost identical treatment durations to what we saw in Canada, just maybe two days less uh, on average. The only exception seems to be in the United Kingdom, where there was one survey and observational study led by Mervyn Singer many years ago which suggested that treatment durations might be shorter. And then some uh, collaborators in the United Kingdom took our electronic case report form and pulled data on 100 patients there. And very interestingly, in the UK, it does look like they give shorter duration treatment. So as, whereas our median is around 14 days, their median is much closer to eight days. Nick, um, the final part of your analysis centred around um, an analysis of outcomes for patients, looking specifically at whether there were any hints that a shorter or longer duration might have impacted on their survival. What did you find with that? If you look at just the crude mortality, it's higher among people getting shorter duration treatment. But we know this is subject to selection bias and survivor bias. So we tried our best to account for that. So like I said before, we did propensity matching to try to account for selection bias, so to try to make match people with short duration treatment as closely as possible to similar patients getting longer duration treatment. And then uh, we found that that influenced the findings a little bit, but there was a much greater influence uh, of survivor bias. So what we did was we looked among all comers, and then we excluded those patients that died within the first day, and then those that died within the first two days, and the first three days, and the first four days, and so on. And as we do that, there's a huge shift in our, our effect from initially looking like it's favoring longer duration treatment to looking like survival really favors shorter duration treatment. So the main message from that last analysis was that you can't study this relationship in an observational study, and that uh, it's support for the need for a definitive randomized controlled trial of shorter versus longer treatment duration for these patients. 
You mentioned propensity matching in uh, what you just said there, and it might be worth trying to summarise what, what that actually is for some of the listeners who might not be familiar with it. How does that work? So in a randomised control trial, where you're randomising people to one treatment approach versus another, they each have a 50% propensity of ending up on the one treatment approach and a 50% propensity of ending up on the other treatment because you're randomizing them, and so you're defining that propensity or that probability of getting a treatment. But when you're using retrospective observational data where we don't get to decide who gets what type of treatment, every patient has their own individual propensity of getting one treatment or the other. So getting longer treatment might be associated with certain bugs or certain patient characteristics or uh, certain sources of infection. So what you do is you run a big model with the outcome being whether the patient got the shorter versus longer duration treatment. And from that, you can compute a propensity. What was the probability for that patient to get shorter or longer duration treatment based on their personal characteristics? And then you can try to find match patients that would have had a similar likelihood of getting shorter duration treatment. Only one of them did get it and one of them didn't get it. It's not perfect, though, because you can only put into that propensity model what characteristics you have been able to capture or know that are important to capture. So there might be still all these unmeasured confounders out there that uh, you can't account for. Whereas the beauty of a randomized controlled trial, if you randomize enough patients, you're balancing them not only on the characteristics you're able to measure, but also the numerous ones that you're not able to measure. Nick, two um, final interesting points that came out of the analysis were, firstly, that uh, there seemed to be a limited degree of agreement between clinicians on the source of the infection. Could you comment on that? Yeah, we were a little bit worried about that variable. That's why we uh, double adjudicated it. So we had two different chart abstractors for the first 100 patients decide uh, what they thought was the source of bacteremia. And they did pretty well for some sources, like urinary tract sources or hepatobiliary sources, where there's good hard imaging or laboratory findings that can pin down the source. They did less well for pneumonia, not surprising because VAP, for example, is so hard to diagnose in ICU, and even worse for blind-related infection because there's usually no signs at the vascular catheter site, and so often it's sort of a diagnosis of exclusion. So I wasn't actually very surprised by that. And after getting more into this work, now when I'm on the wards seeing infectious patients with bacteremia in ICU, this finding really resonates with me. And more and more I notice how many patients for whom I have absolutely no idea where their bacteremia is coming from. I'd say there's a good quarter of patients where we, we would list them as unknown. And even when we have a lead suspect, um, there's often a couple other possible suspects as well. So often we'll end up saying, oh, this person has pseudomonas, bacteremia, probably from ventilator-associated pneumonia, but also possibly from their line or a catheter-associated urinary tract source. So for those who are yet to read the paper, the uh, rate of agreement on line-related infections was uh, 63% and for pneumonia was 74%, which is certainly uh, reflective of, of common practice, I would imagine. Yeah, the other issue was that um, I noted uh, in the description of the paper that no centre was using procalcitonin to guide their therapy. Can you comment on that? So I don't know how things are in Australia right now, but in Canada, I'm not aware of any ICUs routinely using procalcitonin to guide treatment. And critics of our randomized controlled trial plan of fixed duration treatment, short versus long, might argue that you should individualise treatment based on clinical stopping rules 
or novel biomarkers like procalcitonin. But we would argue that there unfortunately aren't any clinical stopping rules in ICU because the cytokine cascade and sepsis continues long after you've treated the culprit bacteria and infection. Just because a patient is still febrile or still on a ventilator doesn't mean that you haven't already cured their infection. And even though procalcitonin seems to have a lot of promise, the sensitivity and specificity are imperfect. Not all trials have shown that it can shorten treatment. And even in some of the impressive trials that have shown use of procalcitonin algorithms to be associated with shorter treatment, the clinician adherence to those algorithms is, is generally quite poor. So we prefer the pragmatic approach of a fixed shorter versus longer duration treatment trial. But I do think there needs to be a lot more ongoing work with biomarkers, and those findings will be synergistic with our fixed duration treatment trial. Nick, congratulations on the uh, impending publication of your paper. It's a great effort, and uh, we look forward to hearing more about uh, your randomized control trial into the near future. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure uh, being on the show. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcasts, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Todd Fraser, MD, is an intensivist and retrieval physician based on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, Australia. Dr. Fraser completed his undergraduate training in Melbourne before undertaking specialist training in hospitals in Geelong and Sydney. His specialist career has included time as a director of intensive care at Mackay Base Hospital in Queensland, regional director of training for Care Flight Medical Services, and as a staff intensivist and flight physician. Dr. Fraser has extensive experience in critical care education, including simulation, web-based training tools, examination preparation courses, and instructional video. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.